Welcome to Vase, a podcast about weird stuff. I'm Peter C. Hine, and joining me as always is my old friend and co-host. He's creepy and he's kooky, mysterious and spooky. He's altogether ooky. It's Stephen Buckley. Oh, brilliant, brilliant. I like how you've, you're starting to introduce a degree of rhyme into this now. Yeah, it wasn't my rhyme. Uh, it was a, a pre-prepared rhyme by by someone else a long time by ago. By someone else, yeah. You've, you've introduced both rhyme and plagiarism into your but no reason. There's, there's, no rhyme, reason. there's no reason. There's yeah, the, the, reason. the plagiarism is fine, you know, like uh, I'm, I'm down with a bit of plagiarism. You've got to start somewhere, haven't you? Well, that's it, exactly, yeah. Yeah. So um, anyway, my introduction out of the way, tonight is is, is a uh, is an interesting one because we actually have two guests. So it's our first time with two guests. Normally we just have one guest or no guest, but tonight two guests. So it's either going to be amazing or absolute chaos, but it's Halloween. So we thought, why not embrace the chaos? Um, our first guest tonight was actually our first ever guest on the show. Um, we basically needed to practice with someone that we knew before we unleashed ourselves onto the world. Um, so he's someone who has the ideal balance of being interested in the world of the weird, but he also maintains a healthy scepticism and has a good nose for bullshit. He incorporates both Mulder and Scully into his approach, which we think is a good way to be. Um, he's also a fantastic musician, a skilled sound sound engineer, and an all-round lovely bloke. It's Mr. Mark Burford, who you'll know under his music musical alias of Fieldlines Cartographer. Hello, Mark. Hello, Mark. Good evening. Good evening, gentlemen. Thanks, Stephen. I think that was all nice. I, uh, yeah, it was, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah it was mostly was. nice. It yeah. seemed nice to me. <laughs> It's just, this is interesting now because when we first interviewed you a year ago or a year and mm-hmm. a half ago, I'd never met you. That's true. And we've now met several times, actually, in real life, in actual rooms. In actual real, real life. Rooms. We've shaken hands. We have. Yeah. And I've listened yeah. to your music um, live, you. which was excellent. <laughs> oh, yeah. So you have. <laughs> so, um, so joining Buckley, myself and Mark is a returning hero, another returning hero. He's star episode 17 of Vase. He's a paranormal adventurer. He's the co-author of the current Vampirella Dead Flowers series of comic books. He was the lead designer on the Fire and Ice Miniatures tabletop game based on the work of artist Franz Fazetta. And he's an all-around good bloke. He's the one, the only, except no substitutes, the occult detective himself. It's Mr. Bob Freeman. (laughs) You're far too kind. Yes, I'm so happy to be here, guys. Uh... Pleasure to have you back. Well, it's, I'd just like to say it's lovely to be on a podcast live with Bob this time because I really, really enjoyed, I think it was 17, was it? It was the, the one that Bob was on. It was one of my absolute favourite ones. It was it was great. I've listened to that at least twice, I think. So it's good to Yeah, I've listened to it over and Not over. Not in the same it's, room, it's nearly the same. It's near to be the same room we're going to get for a while, <laughs> I suspect. So, yeah, same guys. virtual room. But this is <laughs> why we got you guys back. Both of you guys have kind of a special place in the vase heart because uh, obviously Mark was our first ever guest. And Bob was the first person that we didn't know who ever tweeted about us, I think. Um, yeah. Uh, from there, we uh, we snapped him up onto the show almost immediately. I think he was our first fan, wasn't he? If you if you don't count friends as fans, then he was our first. He was the first person who seemed to like us who we didn't know. So it was, yeah. it was exciting. Well, that's an honor. We became instant fans of the Occult Detective, which is um, uh, you know, I would recommend everyone does the same. So we're all friends. We've established that. We're, yes, we're all so friends. we got over the, the back slapping and the handshaking and the uh, the chummery. Yeah, I wonder how long it'll last. Let's get down to business. <laughs> so we're here today uh, because it's Halloween, um, and what we wanted to do was to talk to Mark and Bob 
um, and asking them to tell us some spooky stories, some ghost stories, some kind of things that you would tell around the campfire in the woods late at night in the middle of October. So here we are now. We're sitting around that roaring campfire. Can we bring in that ambience, Buckley? Sure. Hang on a second. Oh, no, that's the wrong one. This one. Here we go. Very nice. And we'd like to say to Mark Burford, Mark Burford, field line cartographer, can you tell us a story? I'll do my damnedest, guys. So we, we, I think we wanted to talk about a little sense of place and maybe something from childhood's always good, isn't it? Particularly for Halloween-type things. It's where you first... It's many people's first entry point into the, the idea that things are perhaps not often all they seem or, you know, even just for one, one night a year, maybe, even at least. So I'll talk a little bit about the place I grew up and then... A couple of general things, because it was a little bit weird in where I grew up. I think everywhere in Britain and England are, because they're so old. But I'll, without wanting to bore you too much with a bit of history first, I, I do think it's sort of relevant. And then I've got a little spooky tale, uh, which wasn't quite Halloween, but I think it was. I think it was November. It was early November, so we weren't. It wasn't far off when this little story I'm going to tell you happened to me. But um, despite having migrated to Lancashire, thirty three years ago I grew up actually uh, almost slap bang in the middle of England um, in a tiny little village called Harbury which is in Warwickshire and it is slap bang in the middle of England in fact there's a place down the road called Meriden which as the name suggests is nearly the middle um, as in Meridian and um, it's very lovely and it's very typically like I say all these places have history don't they and I think that's what makes them so great and so intrinsically spooky because we know that Harbury has been a, uh, a settlement since way before recorded time. I mean, you're talking, they found Bronze Age pots and stuff in all the fields and things around it. And it sits on, a lot of Warwickshire is quite flat and then it'll have these really quite high, high points, you know. And there's obviously a settlement there because Harbury is high up. You can see everything around it. And um, I seem to remember, I think so the, the name of it actually comes from an Iron Age chief who was a female chief in in, interestingly, she was uh, called uh, Herebra. Um and she, you know, and that was a hill fort. It was in 500 BC. It was literally a, a sort of a, you know, a, a hill fort, an earthen works hill fort. And um, so there's there's a lot of history there, an awful lot of history there. There were buildings in the middle of the village that are 13th, 14th century just about standing the majority of 16th and 17th century so there's a lot going on and then on one side of it it's bordered with the Foss Way literally you went down the street I, I lived on down the hill there is huge Roman road you know one of the classic Roman roads of, of, of Britain dead straight as a die and people always reported that on certain nights of the year you can hear and if you're lucky you might even see the legion still marching down the Foss Way, past uh, where I used to live, clanking away, you know, motorists swerving for horses that aren't there, the whole, the whole thing. So weirdness has been reported right since, since those days, and then you get into Saxon times. And then you get our old friends, the Templars, which I think I've discussed, maybe, maybe not, it wasn't on Vase, I don't think we talked about it, but I think I've mentioned it to you, Buckley, about 
this idea that never mind Indiana Jones rooting around in the sand, you know, in North Africa and the Middle East. Lots of people, there's a, there's a weird link between the Knight Templars and uh, Knights Templar and uh, Warwickshire, weirdly. Um, you know, there are people who think that the, 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 the Grail and, and, and bits of even the Ark of the Covenant ended up a few miles away in a place called Napton on the Hill, uh, which is just down the road from, from where I grew up. And um, so there is actually a place in Harbury called Temple End, which was literally Templar's End because they bought up loads of the land and lived there for a uh, hundred odd years or so before they probably got, I don't know, murdered or something like that. And I'm not really sure on that. And it goes on. There are, so there are ghosts all over this village. It's ancient. It's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years old written down, let alone before that. Um, there's a, there was a great one which we were always told about as kids. There's uh, a, a building called Wagstaff House, which was originally Wagstaff School, you know, when they used to make schools in tiny little cottages and have, like, 12 kids in them or whatever. And it was from, like, about 1611. And... There used to be a, a, a cowled, a, a classic cowled ghost who roamed around in front of the Wagstaff school and he would make shrieking noises and then run into, uh, run into the nearby Norman graveyard and scare people a bit in there. And to such an extent that somebody actually took pot shots at him, you can actually see the bullet holes, I think probably musket shot holes to be actually correct, they're actually still in the door of Wagstaff house where somebody got so freaked out they took a, took a rifle to him. Um, one night so we grew up with all that stuff but as you know Buckley I'm not I like it all but it it didn't really impact you know I wasn't the sort of kid that that, that post about sort of 10 or 12 or whatever didn't go around thinking oh yeah there must be ghosts everywhere where I live but it's a beautiful old village and if if you go to it it definitely has a certain air to it in the way that all all those places you go to any of the great Lancashire's the same I've been to you know most counties in England that they're all they all have that feeling to them when you walk around churchyards late at night you can feel those hundreds of years of, of, of stuff that's gone on and so my own personal weird thing and it was really only the only actually definable weird thing that happened to me where I grew up right in the middle of the country as far away from the sea as it's possible to get just down the road from the city of Coventry, the Coventry. I'm just sort of filling in all these extra little details for you now. <laughs> and, of course, my local hometown, not village, was a certain Leamington Spa, which I'm sure met people who are interested in the weird and the occult know about the most famous son from the, city, from the town of Leamington Spa. Crowley. Indeed so, yeah. He, he was born into a very wealthy family. You can drive past their original house on... Uh, it's just at, off the bottom of what's called the parade, which is the main... Uh, anyway, too, sorry, too much detail. I just like talking about history things, really. It's bad, isn't it? I should shut up. Um, my story. So, where my road was, you could then, which was called Park Lane, you could turn off and you could go on to something called Bushheath Lane, which then takes you virtually almost immediately out into the countryside. Now, I didn't know this at the time. I found it out afterwards, after what I sort of experienced, because I thought this was weird. Apparently, another bit of history is there was... Uh, a plague pit there dating from I think the plague of 1340s Black Death so we all know about plague pits, great big pits shovel all the bodies in, quick line them nasty business Um, but that's what they did and and this was literally this plague pit was on the corner of Park Lane, Bushheath Lane and another extra weird bit was was there was also uh, a story that one of the 
a local who lived in the house just nearby, uh, literally on that corner, had actually quite brutally murdered his wife and his two children and thrown them in the pit as well. So there was an added level of, of, of sort of horror, shall we say, for Halloween in there. And so one night, anyway, I'm doing one usual thing. It's just gone dark. It's about quarter past seven on something like, I don't know, was it Tuesday, Wednesday night? I was still at school, but I was 16. And I took the dog for a walk. Uh, and that's the way I went. That's the way I always went. It wasn't anything new. It wasn't anything unusual for me. Um, it was one of those, I think, what is it, Dylan Thomas, who described it as, uh, what is it? Moonless and Bible black. You know those nights you <laughs> only get in the countryside where once I got away from the last street lamp on the corner and I started walking down Bushheath Lane, which is this long straight thing, just fields either side, fields and trees, fields and trees. It was, you know, nearly, nearly can't see in front, you know, your own hand in front of you, sort of dark. Again, not a problem for me. I grew. That's where I grew up. I was. I was used to this. And again, I think anybody who knows me, I, I'm not a sort of. I don't scare easily. I'm not bothered about in the pitch black. I'm not bothered about walking through the countryside late at night. It's lovely. Um, I've got my dog with me. She, Brandy, she runs on ahead as usual. She always does. Keeps looking back at me. You can see her little eyes. But she always likes to be a good fifty, hundred yards ahead, sniffing stuff out, having a whale of a time. Because you could just let. There's no traffic. There's nobody. You know, the dog just run, runs off as, as dogs like to do. So I've just started proceeding down the road a little bit. And then, this is where it gets a bit hard to explain, because you know that sense you get of, the classic sense of you think you're being watched? And everybody reports it, nobody really knows what it is, but that was how this started. I got that classic sense of like, there's somebody looking at me. So I sort of stopped, and obviously I look around. I don't know what a good look looking's going to do. All I can see is hedges and outlines of trees and, and, and nothing. There's nobody there, obviously, so I think. But I've got that sense. So I carry on walking, and, and then that slightly changes to sort of more... Not only is there somebody looking at me, there's, there's something behind me. And at this point, I'm a good... 200 yards out of where I've turned maybe more, 250 yards where, from where I've turned off you know, civilization, as it were, to go out into the countryside and I I think okay, get, get, a, get a grip you know, this, this can't be you just you know, again, as anybody who knows me I, I, don't, I don't freak myself out I don't get freaked out, I don't really have that sort of mentality, it doesn't but this feeling just gets stronger and stronger and stronger until I'm actually turning and staring and thinking, what are you doing, you idiot? You know, when you're staring, you try and peer into the darkness back the way I've come, listening really attentively, so at this point my, all my senses are on, hyper alert, but I know I can't either hear or see or smell anything. Every time I turn my back and start walking slowly again, there it is, the sense that there is something behind me. And so I do start to get a little bit freaked out at this point because this is a road I know like the back of my hand. It's not like I've never been here before. You know, I do this three, four times a week often. And so then this feeling grows and grows and grows and grows until I really get the definite sense that not only is there something behind me, but it's something not very pleasant behind me and it's closing the gap on me which is the bit when I really start to to feel a bit odd really really a bit odd 
and then it starts to slowly turn almost into, I wouldn't say panic, but a little voice finally goes off in my head that's like, you need to run. You actually need to run at this point. And I've never had this feeling before in my entire life. It was weird. I sort of checked myself and thought, you're being stupid, aren't you? And I went, no, I've got to go. And at that point, I did go. You know, I was 16 at that point. I was quick, really quick. And I went as fast as I could possibly go. And I did. The dog sort of looked at me like that, but she thought it was hilarious. She just sort of thought, well, I'll, I'm going as well. So she went absolutely like the clappers. And we ran at full pelt until I got to the stile, about 200 yards away, that takes you off the, off the road across a little field, across another stile, into the top of sort of what we call the playing fields, which is like where all the football, you know, the municipal sort of, the football pitches are there and all of that sort of stuff. And from there I could walk back down towards lights, towards houses, towards the road, towards people. And it was only at that point when I actually finally got down to the bottom there that my heart rate came down and I started to sort of get a grip of myself. And I have never, ever felt like that I'd never felt like it until that night and I've never ever felt anything like it since and it always freaked me out because you start to question everything it's like is this was it just my imagination I'm not the sort of person that my imagination gets the best of I've sat in pitch black in the woods camping with no tent and stuff before at night I've done all it doesn't bother me this genuinely freaked me out it was like something was telling me there was definitely something not particularly pleasant maybe it wanted to do me harm I don't know behind me and every finally every bit of my body told me to run and it was only so it was that that led me to find out stuff like the plague pit and because I didn't know that in advance I found all that out afterwards I did a bit of research like where was I on Bush Heath Lane what had happened in that area and that's what I discovered. Plague pit, loads of bodies in the, in the 1340s and also a quite grisly murder, which was fairly well documented. And my, my sister had a friend who lived literally on the house, probably the last house, that last house. And they were completely au fait with their ghost that they got there. They just It was a matter of fact for them, moving their feet around in bed at night, moving things around in the house at night. And this was just part of a whole tapestry of, ghost stories that do exist in that village and I guess still exist now and I think they probably exist in villages all over the country don't they you know but that wasn't a nice friendly sort of you know seeing a little spectre or it genuinely was unpleasant and it genuinely frightened me for a good few hours and I'll never ever forget it if I actually sit and think carefully about I can actually recall the exact feeling of dread and terror that I got and I've never had that again before since and I can't explain it maybe it was all in my mind I don't know though but there you go there's my nearly Halloween little personal ghost story in the slightly spooky village of Harbury which if you're ever in the middle and just go and find it lovely fantastic wow okay a lot, to, a lot to chew on there. Um, <laughs> I mean, my first thought when you talked about the history stuff was you need to have a word with our friend Paul Weston and uh, see what he makes of all that, of all the, yeah, all the yeah. grail stuff. Yeah. Paul probably knows more than me about it. You know what he's like. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as as someone who knows you very well and has known you for 15 years, like that kind of gave me goosebumps hearing that because I know that you're, yeah. like you say, you're not someone who scares easily. You're not someone who um, kind of makes shit up. 
No, I'm always the person in the group. You know, when you get the whole group hysteria thing, you're out somewhere late at night, you're in a spooky graveyard or whatever, and people, I'm always the one going, calm down, you know, get a grip, everyone. It's it's fine. There's nothing here. That's me. I have a question. Um, The dog. Mm -hmm. Your your dog didn't react to this at all? No, and I've thought about that an awful lot because I think she was so far ahead and doing doggy stuff in the hedge, yeah. smelling about... I, I, there's a bit of me that would have loved the dog to have been right next to me because I would have loved to have seen her response because I'm a bit, I am a bit of a believer in that sort of thing. I've seen it with certainly our cats in this house. Um, and, yeah, no, she was, she was 50, 60, 70 yards ahead of me most of the time, wagging her tail, having a whale of a time. Um, so yeah, I've often thought about that. I would, I would have liked the dog to be there in a way. Yeah, as a bit of a you know extra sensory sort of equipment at that point. Really, I think. Yeah, this is a question that I used to ask every kid that I met when I was a kid to see if I could be friends with them or not. But there's not that much riding on this now, Mark. <laughs> but but Mark, do you believe in ghosts? I believe that there is something that you might want to describe as a ghost. I'm not going to say what that is, but there are certainly things, presences, imprints, forces that are beyond what we encounter 99.9% of the time. I think it was the very first phase when I told you about the shape on the stairs. Yeah. yeah. Just out there, in fact. Just, just there. Yeah. So I would now never doubt anyone who said to me because the thing is I don't think in the main people make this stuff up do they what? Uh, I think uh, some uh, people do but not everyone you know you're inviting yourself to ridicule for a large sections of the population who are just going to ridicule you it's a bit of a joke um, but people don't make stif- stuff like this up more to the point people have been reporting incredibly similar sort of things for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years so uh, is everybody making it up Does it go, or is it just a folklore thing that, that, that you know people run away with i don't know i would yeah i think in the broadest sense my answer sorry hein to your question is yeah I, I, the, we can be friends then i'd be yeah, yeah. <laughs> i believe in so, i believe you can't explain all this away there's there's not an easy just explain exp, maybe you can explain some of them away but th- there's something there's something going on undoubtedly going on Bob, as someone who's investigated a lot of this sort of thing, what are your thoughts on Mark's story? First of all, it's a very believable story because it's not overly fantastical, right? So so he obviously was scared by whatever this was. So yeah. there, there's hundreds of things that it could have been. You know, I mean, it could have been a you know traditional ghost, a spirit... I would come near thinking that it was some type of, uh, like, elemental-type creature, right? right? Just because not getting a reaction from the dog, it was masked from from that, and that mm-hmm. makes me lean towards uh, something of a more nature-type spirit. And okay. sometimes they get hungry, and they want to leech <laughs> that kind of energy right. off of you. Right, okay. Yeah. Uh, elemental, I like the sound of that. That, that sort of it was an elemental sort of a night in an elemental sort of environment so yeah I, I can I can see that that's yeah I can, it's making me sort of feel a bit funny just thinking about it now actually <laughs> I haven't actually said it out loud 
to anybody for a very long time, if you know what I mean. You know, I don't know the last time I would have told this tale, but it would have been a long time ago. And so just talking about it, I can actually feel my palms are, you know, are sweating <laughs> now. And bear um, in mind that Mark works, for the most part, in a old church yeah. in the middle of the countryside where, yeah. you know, yeah. th- there's some seriously black roads around there where you can't see anything. It's a, it's a spooky place. So the fact that yeah. you've yeah you've, you've been working there for how many years and not yeah. experienced anything, but then no, this I know. is the it's, one experience that you strange. had, you know. Like I say, I am not un- I am not a stranger to being in those sorts of environments whatsoever. I, I yeah. never normally crosses my mind. I'm not going to be freaked out. I'm not going to be frightened. But that was a sense of fear beyond anything. Not just fear, but more. I think dread's a better word than fear. It was more of a sense that there was something really, really, really bad behind me. You know. Do something- you remember any other um, things from around the time in terms of? You know, do you remember sort of what else was going on in your life at the time? What, you mean like anything? sort of the stressful things and all of that sort of thing? Yeah, well, I know there's the there's the whole thing about liminality and about yeah. uh, sort of being outside of structure and the idea that these things tend to happen to people who are like say are traveling or that's an example of being a teenager is obviously between adult and. Yeah, know. I mean, I was a teenager. I, I was I was sixteen, so I was due to be seventeen that yeah December December yeah. So that's that's where I was, but it was all very ordinary in my life, you know. I was yeah. doing it was an ordinary whatever. I think it was a Wednesday. I'm sure, it was a Wednesday. It was an uh, ordinary was, Wednesday. I'm sure night. it was a Wednesday. It's always a Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> you know, walking yeah. the dog, perfectly normal. You know, maybe that's why I got so freaked out because it was the very very normal, the very literally mundane yeah. every day had suddenly taken an incredibly weird twist in a place that I knew literally like the back of my hand so I was sort of blindsided by it you know do you remember the moon phase do you know I don't I'd, ha- I'd have to go back and try and pinpoint the date and look at it wouldn't I I remember that I couldn't st- it was a moonless night now that could have just been cloud cover of course well, that's why, you know, yeah, the way you described it right and I was thinking if it was a new moon mm-hmm. you know from my experience that brings out negative energies Right? right, so like if you go okay. on a ghost hunt in a place, there's a full moon. You'll have a totally different experience than right. if there's a new moon. Oh, that's uh, interesting. The, the negative really gets a charge from that. And, I might go uh, back and so, sort of work it backwards and just see if I can check my memories to which sort of Wednesday early in November that was. And I'll, that's interesting, Bob. I will look at that. I didn't know that. Have you ever been back there as an adult? Yes. Oh yeah. Probably not in those situations. Probably not, you know, in the dark on my own, yeah. apart from the dog at night. But yeah, I've been down that road. I always think about it though now. Whenever it, I don't go yeah. back there that often, but I remember the last time I did, I drove past it and I thought, oh, corner of Bushheath and Park Lane. Eek, that was a bit. Oh. Yeah. And then put it out, of, put it out of my mind again, you know. So yeah, I, but I have been back. Yeah, spirits like that have long memories. I'd be interested if you like went out there and tried to recreate the situation. You know, go out on a moonless night and just see what happens. <laughs> I don't think he wants to, Bob. <laughs> I admire, I admire your optimism with this one, Bob. But I'm telling you now, that's never going to happen because, for number one, 
I am nowhere near as quick as I was when I was 16. <laughs> You've seen the speed I'd have done those 200 yards. You'd have been, uh, it was hair raising. I'd be like ambling along. I'd trip over. I'd fall into the hedge. No, that's not going to happen. <laughs> it's really not. <laughs> At a certain age, you have to kind of learn to stand your ground. And yeah, so. uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> I can, I can see, I can see. This isn't really. This, I'm not cut out for this. Clearly. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a story. It's not a particularly personal one, though it has like a personal denouement, and um, it's more just about a, a ghost story that was familiar to me as a kid in the place that, uh, or the nearest town to where me and Buckley grew up, which is Preston. It's the story of the Bannister doll. I thought this was when I was a kid. I thought it was a kind of universal ghost story, but I think it is actually specific to Preston, perhaps, or, or certainly Lancashire. It's um, a ghost that's said to haunt Ladywell Street, which you might know, Buckley, which is um, one of the ones around the back of Corporation Street, like to the west. So this is a ghost, this is a spectral figure, which has been known to shapeshift. So uh, it takes on various forms. It could be um, just footsteps, um, it could be a small child, it could be a black dog, but the most terrifying and common way in which people encounter this spirit is the Bannister doll which is a once beautiful young woman who'd been, as it turns out brutally whipped to death and this isn't a nice story Like I need to sort of uh, trigger warning people, this is like a, quite a horrible and gruesome story um, there's, there's been some controversy about whether it's true or not, um, because the most common telling of the story says that the, the father of the Bannister doll um, was the mayor of Preston um, and um, that has been kind of disproved um, because the name doesn't fit, the circumstances don't fit, as you'll be able to tell when I tell the story, it's quite a specific set of circumstances which there would be a record of had a mayor committed these crimes um, but um, there was a governor, a uh, governor of a house of correction, um, which is which was on Greyfriars Covenant, which is between Lower Pitt Street and Ladywell Street. Um, and there, whippings were very, very common form of punishment that were handed out. And um, John Bannister was the governor, which fits because he had a daughter called Dorothy, also known as Dolly. So kind of Dolly Bannister. So that could be that could be. This is research from um, Beyond the Black Pool, uh, which is a website I'll link to in the show notes. So Dolly was a young, attractive woman, and she had men, many admirers and a number of potential suitors. Um, but no one was kind of aware of her actually, you know, having a, a significant other. 
Um, but then one day she fell pregnant. You can tell this is a one of those old and kind of horrible stories. Um, because it was the 18th century, her father was like insane with rage. Um, it was it was like, like a, a damning indictment on his family, brought shame on her deceased mother, um, and you know John Bernaster was of good standing in the community, and this was besmirching his name. So in a fit of temper, he dragged his daughter Dolly in, out into the street. He tethered her to a post, and he whipped her with such force that when she was taken down, uh, she couldn't survive her injuries, and she died. Uh, later on, it transpired that she'd become pregnant because she'd actually been raped, and this was, um, you know, her father sort of had to live with that guilt afterwards, and um, you know, this sort of trauma and this this like this negative feeling um, attached itself to the place, like this 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 imprint um, that you see now is a pale blood-stained figure, which is known to walk down the street. Uh, she, was, she was laid to rest in the Holy Trinity churchyard um, and this, this, that churchyard is also haunted as a lot of the churchyards in Preston obviously are and, and, and all through Lancashire. And not long after she died, uh, the crushed corpse of a young man was discovered in the town centre. Uh, his ribcage and his skull had been mashed to a pulp and no explanation could ever be found. And then a fortnight later another was found in similar circumstances and then a third and all of the local men were terrified, you know, had the Bannister Doll started a terrible, vengeful murder spree. Um, after that, the mysterious death stopped, but the sightings have intensified over the years, and in the half-light you can still see that spectral form wandering down Snow Hill from Ladywell Street most evenings, apparently. And people in Preston know this and give it a wide berth. So... I've never seen the Bannister doll. I've, I've never experienced it. But when I was a kid, the story had sort of taken on a different, like, form. A much, like, simpler form, which had been passed down through playgrounds, you know, like a kind of oral tradition through kids. And a lot of all that very, very gruesome and barbaric stuff had kind of been taken out of it. Um, so when I was, like, growing up, you know, like, uh, you yeah, know, maybe between the ages of when I was born till when I was about 12, my great-grandmother lived in this massive house on Edgerton Street in Preston. And it was one of the old detached houses, quite massive on a big road. Um, her husband had been a, uh, an antiques dealer. So it was that kind of house, you know, full of old stuff. It was on about three levels and it had a cellar. And um, I used to go there all the time when I was a kid. Like I was really, really fond of my great-grandmother and I used to spend days and days there. And it's really kind of become imprinted into me, like Mark was saying, you know, it's really become a, like a, uh, like it's in my dreams a lot, you know, like I'm often on that road, I'm often in that house. Uh, and that house is definitely haunted, like there's absolutely no doubt about it, you know, like, like uh, I'm I, I not even sure I ever saw a ghost there, but you, you just knew. There were two kids who lived next door, um, Matthew and Paul, um, they're keeping a very New Testament, obviously. Um, and um, they were like a little bit older than me. Uh, like a few years uh, which when you're a kid makes a big difference and I used to play with them in that house 
um, and we used to like grab like bits of wood like splinters of wood nail them together to make crosses and then like march down into the cellar where there was this like all these different rooms and there was a headless rocking horse and all this sort of stuff you know and that, this was like the very beginning of me ghost hunting um, but Matthew and Paul were the ones who told me the story of the Bannister doll and it was in that house that I first heard this story um, and it, it changed so much that it's barely the same story but this is what's interesting about ghost stories and one of the things that I kind of like there's so many iterations of the same story and you wonder how many have come from the same root of the same story you know when you hear these things um, but th when I heard this story it was about a young girl um, who was completely inseparable from her favourite doll and she lived in a house with a staircase with 13 steps and one day she fell from the top to the bottom breaking her neck and the spirit of her went into the doll um, because of her unfortunate death the girl's spirit had become bitter and murderous and you could summon the spirit by finding a staircase with 13 steps knocking three times on the banister and saying banister doll banister doll come and play with me three times and uh, I still get scared I still get like chills on you yeah. know the hairs of my neck stand up on end when I hear that because like that was terrified me so much as a kid you know and then when you did summon the doll she would basically just chase you and kill you and that, that was it <laughs> like, like um but like you can see how it evolved through because this was the late 80s early 90s you, know, you can see child play in there you can see Candyman in there you know all, yeah, all of those Beetlejuice Beetlejuice all of those sort yeah. of uh, ghost stories from that time you know that sort of, the sort of semi slasher semi semi horror film you know and when you think about it it's like it's ridiculous there is no story like all of the bits of the story have been removed from that story like and so that story has no story it's just about a girl there's no motive there's no beginning or end why did she fall why did she become murderous why was that doll so special to her why did the spirit move into it none of it makes sense why would you summon that ghost if it's only going to kill you it's not even like a faustian pact it's just <laughs> a, like a way of killing yourself what's well, a dare yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's it. It is a dare. That's it's like the Bloody Mary uh, legend, Bloody Mary. you know, yeah, staring into the um, the mirror in the dark, um, and that kind of thing. Um, so, of course, one day Matthew and Paul decided that with me, the young kid in the house, they were going to do it. You know, we found that that staircase had thirteen steps. They were going to knock on the banister, and they did. And I was so scared that I ran out of the house and hid in the garden, so terrified, like being the brave, bold Ghostbuster that I was at that age, <laughs> and, um, and and like cowering in the garden. And of course, like nothing happened, you know, because nobody believed that story, like except for me, nobody <laughs> in the world believed that story. And like, as far as I know, like as far as I last heard, Matthew and Paul are still alive and well, but I still got the last laugh because like I'm still younger than them. So there is that. <laughs> but yeah, I, I just thought that was interesting the way that like such like a brutal story can get passed down and like forced through all the different sorts of like playgrounds and like mm -hmm. sanitized and changed and made into something which is less brutal and bloody and, and horrifying than the original story which is possibly or probably true to something which is much more terrifying to an eight-year-old right, right yeah i mean that's that's kind of the premise of Candyman, isn't it yeah that she's so. she's investigating the way that sort of this brutal murder gets turned into like the folklore and then she actually looks into it and finds out like it was an actual thing that happened to an actual person and it was fucking awful rather than just this like little thing that you use to, to creep kids out um, so Mark what were your first thoughts about that story did you have any yeah no I, I think it's a great because it's a classic it's a classic ghost story the, the first bit the original story is very 
you get these things time and time again, don't you? If you ever go on, I'm a big fan of, you know, when you go somewhere that you've not been to before and it's like historic, so Lancaster do them, York do them, you know, and you go on like a ghost walk. Yes. It's these very are much always, like that. Yeah. These are always the stories that you get where, yeah. you know, it's rooted in the local area. And it, it, it and then as you've quite eloquently described, Hein, it, it morphs from what it was into just this folkloric thing to yeah. tell children to go to... to get them to go to bed at night you know that sort of uh otherwise you know the, the, the you know the dolls gonna the banister dolls gonna get you and all of that it's yeah and, and this it must be i mean bob will know this must be absolutely just common certainly in the western world i don't know about the, the rest of the world but because you hear so many of these everywhere's got a version of it haven't they really it's it's everywhere it, it, it literally is everywhere. You know, you hear the same stories in India and in China, you know, just yeah. wherever you go, those type of urban legends, folklore center yeah. stories are just ingrained into every school kid. You know, yeah. Across and the, the the first part, the vengeful father thing is super common. Like I was on a ghost walk in Lyme Regis recently and um, yeah, there was a really similar one, except that was like a mill owner who locked his daughter for a very similar reason. Um, you know, she was romancing a, a local boy that he didn't like, locked her in the, in a room in the mill, and the mill burnt down with her in, and that sort of thing. You know, and it's quite—it's always like that brutal, like misogynist, the very like bad, negative male energy. It's very often controlling either fathers or husbands or, yes, is, isn't yeah. it? Uh, yeah. And, and then you get the murder, you get the rape, you get all this yeah. this sort of like extremely bad, like um, horrific, like energy, you know and, and like, I mean part of it I think is just because that is what is actually scary you know, the ghosts are less scary, that's the less the least scary yeah. part of that, although there is the twist yeah. in the banister doll that these young men kept turning up pulverized but then that is the where the real brutality the real horror lies is is in that is in that evil the evil that men do um you know as, i mean humans do you know men and women yeah. and, and everyone in between does or can do um but and i think that is why that is so central to a lot of those stories because that is the actual horror and the um the actual spooky bit is almost like a release you know like like a, a way to um perhaps move that brutality and evil into something that's more fantasy and more ephemeral um, you know, uh, that's not to say yeah. that the stories aren't true but I, I certainly think that that is part of the psychology of why a lot of those stories are structured in that way uh, because like that Bannister doll, the main part I mean, I left out a lot of the details because they were just too horrible for me to read through uh, you know, in, the, in the details that this story is sometimes told in it's just horrifying, you know, like real, real descriptions of like how far her father went in the whipping and that sort of stuff, you know, stuff that we don't need to get into. But um, it's that, it's, I, I do think that that is where real horror lies. Because one of the things I've been thinking about whilst I've been preparing this episode is like, and, and this might be one for Bob actually, like, are ghosts actually scary? You know, we talked to you, Bob, when we were doing our episode 17 and you saw that shape that we thought maybe you fit in with stone tape theory you know in the corner of the cemetery you know and and like it was it sounded spooky but are they actually scary you know are the are these things actually terrifying what especially when you spent the amount of time around them that you have right yeah so the the majority of ghosts you know are not right they're the the majority of the the ghosts that you interact with are residual 
you know you're watching you're watching a play you know and so so yeah there's no there's no fear there you're just you know it's just it's something interesting intriguing and and something you try to figure out the story about but then you have those odd bits where something you know is you know sentient and aggressive and uh, yeah, you can have those moments of true terror, you know. That, especially you know when you're not expecting it, you know when something reaches out and grabs you, you know you get scratched or poked or you know mm. bitten, whatever. So, but by and large, I take my chances with a ghost over another human being most days. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, yeah. The, Nine nine times out of ten, yeah, the the, uh, the physical being is 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 far more dangerous. So, but it depends on where you go, right? So, yeah. so just to add to the uh, the Halloween ambiance, a fly has entered my studio <laughs> and is occasionally sort of landing on your faces. Um, you know, like that episode of the X Files when there's the little oh, cockroach yeah. that crawls across the screen. It's a little bit like that. Where there's like flies that are landing yeah. on you. So. If I seem to be a little bit distracted and kind of twitchy, like more so than usual, I know I'm always like that anyway, uh, it's because of the fly, it's not, you know. I hope it's not like the fly. Have you ever seen, you know, not, not the not the Cronenberg, the fly, but the original black and white? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because that adds the whole extra creepy bit in that the transfer happens the other way around, doesn't it? And there's a tiny yeah. little fly with a little man's head on it. Oh, no. Yeah. And I, oh, I, I found that far more disturbing yeah. than, 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 you know, Seth Brundle or whatever he's called, and, you know, being, oh, God, yeah, sorry. I wish you'd never told me that. End, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Help Thanks me! for ruining my night. <laughs> <laughs> Help, Help me! me. <laughs> <laughs> should move on to Mr. Bob Freeman's story now. Ah, okay. Uh, so the story I want to share with you um, takes place about 20 minutes from where I'm sitting now, out uh, north towards the Mississippi Reservoir. And one evening in 1986, early fall, um, I was sitting at home, and a friend came by and he said, hey, you want to go to a haunted house? Well, okay, yeah, sure. So we gather up a few other mates and we head out to a place called Peoria, which is right about in the heart of the Mississippi State Forest. So that area runs along what used to be the Mississippi River. And in the mid-1960s, the Army Corps of Engineers came in and put in a reservoir. So all the small towns and graveyards in that area were moved, sometimes not completely. So this area called Peoria had a place called the Cliffs, where you know young people would go and dive off into the water. 
and there were caves peppered all along that cliffside where you know local legends told of these small goblin-like creatures that lived in these tiny caves and this is you know just right in the shadow of somerset you know which just has a hellier connection right so uh, this is in indiana not kentucky but so so we end up out there, and I'm I'm thinking, look, it's haunted house, you know, there's, there's no houses around here, not anymore. And so he takes us off deep into the woods, and he had been out mushroom hunting, and he stumbled upon a house. So as we walk up toward it, it's about ten o'clock at night, and there's this, you know, two story house. You see trees kind of growing in through the windows and. You know, it's, it's dark, pitch dark, you know, once we're, we're back in there. And uh, he, said, he said he hadn't gone inside yet. You know, he was kind of scared to go in. Uh, so, of course, we, we bravely enter the house, open the door, and walk inside, and it is all the furniture there. TV, couch, coffee table, laid out. On the coffee table was a newspaper, kind of spread open like somebody had been reading it, and it was from March of 1966, the month and year I was born, right? So I'm like, oh, that's weird, you know, everybody, yeah. So we go into the kitchen, there are plates sitting at the kitchen table with rotted food on them. The cabinets were full, full of food, utensils in the drawers, food in the refrigerator of course the place has no power we go back into the the main bedroom you can see where like raccoons or possums had been nesting on the bed but the bed is made for the most part and all their clothes are still in the closet it's like it's like they, the people have just vanished and obviously sometime in the 60s so we make our way up an attic stair, and in the attic, of course, it's full of old boxes and steamer trunks and, and you know, like a, you know, well, something that spooked us was there was a, a mannequin up there, you know, like a, like a dressmaker's mannequin, and we got a start from that. Uh, but we opened up one of the trunks, and inside of it was all this weird tracks and information about a cult called Urantia. I don't know if you guys are familiar. They're, uh, they believe that uh, uh, Jesus was an alien and that we were part of this galactic uh, uh, federation. But anyway, so all this stuff's there. There's the Bible. The, uh, then there's audio tapes, countless audio tapes. So we're looking through this stuff. And, oh, this is really strange. And then we hear the door open downstairs. We get really quiet. We go over and we're peeking down the stairway. And we see a figure. And a glowing white walking across the living room. Pauses there near where the newspaper was. And then walk into the kitchen. And then it's, you know, it's it's a ghost. You you can see through it. It's, It's obvious, you know, it's some kind of spectral entity. And we're like just holding our breaths, and we wait as long as we can, and then we go downstairs, and of course nothing's down there. It's fascinating. So, you know, 
around and the guy says, you know, there's another house further up the road, or uh, further up to the trees where the old road used to be. All right, well, we'll go check that out, but we need to come back here and, and investigate this more, more fully. So we move on, and about halfway there, my brother, he says, did you guys notice that the, the house was all lit up? And there were, we didn't have flashlights, but we just realized every room we walked into was well lit. It's, you know, after 10 o'clock in the evening, you know, there's no moon just to see here in the deep woods. And we all like, and we never thought of it at the time. It was like we were kind of, you know, bewitched in a way, right? Just... There was no reason for there to be light there, and yet it was. So we continue on to the second house, and it looks much, much like the other uh, trees growing through the windows and everything. So we walk in. This one is devoid of any furniture. So we're walking into the great room, and the floor is moving, and we're like, oh. And then you hear boom, boom, on the floor beneath us. What the heck is that? And so we're, we're just freaking out. So we look around trying to find an access to the basement. And so we find a trap door on the floor. I reach down and I lift it up. And there's a stairwell going down, but it's completely full of water. So now we've got flashlights out and we're shining them into that dark water. And it's like, what the heck? And then all of a sudden, this thing jumps up out of the water. It's huge. Everybody screams behind me. They're running for their lives. It was a big carp, right? So, <laughs> so the basement is filled with water. And that carp was bumping up against the rock for Joyce. And it was kind of floating on that water. Um, but they were running. So I'm having to catch these guys. And they got to the truck that we had come in, and they're driving away, leaving me. <laughs> you know, like, so I jump in the back of it, and we, we, we drive off. But, uh, yeah, so uh, that, was, that was an exciting night. 1986, I'd have been, like, 20 years old. So uh, Wow. Uh, that was fantastic. That's, uh, that's great. That, I mean, my first thought was uh, you, you talked about... Um, Earlier you talked about the idea of ghosts and it's almost like a play or theatre and the lighting there made me think immediately of theatre, like almost as if it was somehow lit because you were supposed to see that. Yeah, and, and, and right. like, it was like you were walking onto set as well, you know, the way that everything was laid out in the room, yeah. you know, like, like a stage there empty waiting for something to happen like that. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Have you, uh, have you been back there since? Uh... I've gone back. I've tried to go back a few different times and can't find it. Oh, that's even better, right? So because it was so late at night, yeah, and it's big yeah. woods. It's a, I mean, it's a forest, right? So I knew where we parked. I knew where we entered the woods, but and by now it's probably gone. Yeah. Right? So, but that makes it even better, isn't it? That's like the classic. You know, what's the classic one where motorist stops late at night on a country road? knocks on a house you know that one and, and there's, there's footprints in the dusty floor and all of that and they go back the next day and 
course it it's not there the, the whole right, building right. is it's not there that's i think that's a fairly com- but that's a classic you know yeah, oh, I've always God. thought it, it might end up being like a Brigadoon situation, right? And I'll end up out there, and then there it is again. You know, so. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I think sort of with with something like that, you've when you have something that messes with like geography or messes with like the like actual like where things are and stuff like that. That's that's always a bit freaky, isn't yeah, it? Sort yeah. Of, um, because it's sort of it's not just it's not just a. A, a being or whatever it's not just a a, a a kind of entity that you're seeing that is kind of almost separate from you it's like almost the world you're in the space that you inhabit cannot be trusted or cannot be you know isn't safe it's like it's something even that is fucking with you and that's you know the whole idea of like a, a a place being haunted an actual place being Almost. I mean, I'm thinking of the book House of Leaves as well. Oh, yeah. That, yeah. The whole idea of like the, the house mm. being the, the the fucked up place and stuff, and yeah. it's uh, yeah, that's always always doubly creepy. Uh, and the house on um, was it the house on oh. Haunting of Hill House? The Haunting of Hill House. Yeah, oh, Shirley, yeah. Class- uh, Jackson. classic American ghost. Story. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's yeah. that's all about the way that house is. It and, is. And, and I mean, that is an actually terrifying book. There's that one chapter. I can't remember a very short chapter where there's the two women staying in the room together and their beds are on opposite sides of the room and there's all these disturbances and they're holding hands and yeah. then um, and then and then when it, then it obviously turns out that they're not actually holding hands. She held hands with something else. I like that. Yeah. That has absolutely stayed with me. It's an absolutely fantastic book. That. Um, but Bob, I was going to ask you, like, you, you've had a lot of experience. Obviously, this that's a kind of classic ghost story. You're telling there, and the way the the white figure appeared and everything. But as someone who's also been known to dabble in magic and and that kind of thing, what do you think like the difference is between a ghost like what you saw that day and spirits that you might t- communicate with during magic is? Or do you think there is a difference? Or do you think there's an overlap? Or are they completely separate things? It can overlap, but I think for the for the most part, they are completely different entities, right? So, you know, when you deal with the preternatural intelligences that you converse with through magic, is very different than, like, mediumship, where you're, like, bringing a spirit of a dead figure in um, into your circle. So, yeah, they're, they're completely different, because most, in magic, you're dealing with, like, alien intelligences, you know, that are... are, are very different from you, whereas an intelligent ghost was human and has uh, those human sensibilities that you can that you can connect with. Well, I've got, I've got to ask you: Do you believe in ghosts? No, not at all. I believe them. I believe in them as much as I believe in you. So, uh, Buckley, I just wanted to say, by the way, a, a fly watch. I've, I've just got a. A fly's just entered my room as well. Oh no, here we go. The window's closed, the door's closed. Oh no. I'm not going to say any more than that. It'll be the rotting corpse in the corner. (laughs) Meals above. It's it's left, (laughs) it seems to have left my house. I don't think it could have got the 20 miles to your house. Hypersonic. (laughs) Transported. It's through the teleporter. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, it could have gone through the the internet. (laughs) Okay. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it works. Oh, Bob. Hey, thank you. Good Should we move on to my story? Hit us with it, Buckley. Yeah. So gather round, gentlemen. I've got a story to tell you. <laughs> uh, so like like Heinz's story, um, this is something which I... It's not a personal experience as such. It's something which I was told as a child. Yeah, we, we've kind of used up our personal experiences doing 30 episodes of Vase, haven't we? Yeah. You know, like there's, so. there's nothing really we can we can surprise people with now. So, yeah, when I was uh, a young child, um, until the age of about seven, I lived in a small village in Cumbria, which is even further north than where I live now, um, called Great Corby. And it was on the banks of the River Eden. And it was a beautiful village. It still is, actually. I went back recently and hardly anything's changed in the last, like, 33 years since I was last there. It's It's a, you know, there's no there's not even a shop you know it's like it's just got one pub and that's it it's a, a very old village and um, it's surrounding the village some really old woods an ancient woodland uh, the river Aden runs through them and in the ancient woodland there is a castle called Corby Castle um, and when I was a kid I've, I've spoken a lot actually about um the relationship I had with these woods and, and how I spent a lot of time in them with uh, with my dad when I was younger and um, it was sort of my favourite place to go and I think it was like a formative uh, a formative sort of place in my life in terms of things I became interested in like fungus and spooky stuff and you know it, it was these woods I feel like almost like I was partially raised by the woods somehow I don't know anyway that sounds ridiculous doesn't it um, so the, the school I went to um, little tiny primary school there was about 30 people in the whole school um, and it was very there was only three teachers it was very backward at the time because obviously it was in a tiny rural village and um, there was a story that got told um, by the um, by the kids in the playground because um, the playground was also on the edge of the woods um, so the woods was there you know it was it was outside my home, literally, like, our back garden backed out onto the woods. Um, and then the primary school also backed out onto the woods. Like, the, you could not escape the woods in Great Corby. It was just a huge part of it. And there was a story that was told, uh, that, that all the kids told each other, and it was called The Adian Boy. Or so I thought it was called The Adian Boy, uh, or The Aden Boy. Uh, and the story of The Aden Boy was it was a ghost that lived in the woods. And if you saw him you would turn rich and then die. Or you would turn into a witch and then die. Again, I'm not so we've talked about we've talked about the, the idea of the Bannister doll story 
uh, starting out as one thing and sort of gradually through through the sort of game of telephone almost thing, it, it gradually loses things in translation. And I suppose my telling of this story is a great example of that because as a child, I I, I didn't know what a lot of these things meant or or um, I just knew it was either witch or rich, and it was it was kind of mixed up in my brain. I remember having um, we used to tell the kids used to tell stories and the dinner ladies used to tell us stories about him as well uh, to scare us like if you're naughty we'll take you into the woods and stuff like that pretty unethical really for a dinner lady um, and they would they would tell us these stories and I remember having this dream where I saw him once and he looked the the, the Aiden boy he looked like a pumpkin head like a like a jack-o'-lantern pumpkin face uh it was big though it was bigger than your regular pumpkin with a big grin and it was white and it had like sheets hanging from it like white sheets and it was glowing and kind of moving through the woods and leaving like a sort of trail of sliminess with it and and i was terrified and i woke up from that dream really worried that i would either turn rich or turn into a witch and die and it, it really, and I remember it really, really frightened me as a child. But I kind of didn't know. And this was like, so I, I was probably five or six. So I was, I was pretty young. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, in kind of, I think it was like 1988 or something. So I was about seven. We moved away from Great Corby, um, and I sort of, I'd always remembered that story, but it not really kind of thought an awful lot about it um, until me and a close friend of mine started a podcast called Vase. At that point, I figured it's time to it's time to look into it and sort of um, you know, find out a bit more about it. So I looked up uh, I couldn't find Aiden Boy or anything. I was googling it and I was looking up ghosts around Great Corby, ghosts in uh, in that area, and I found the Radiant Boy. And so what had happened was I, the, it was either me or the other kids had not understood the word radiant because we were five mm-hmm. and it had become Aiden or Adian. So anyway, the radiant boy. Um, so according to the story, which was told by... Um, this was told by a guy called Henry Howard. So Henry Howard was the guy who owned um, Corby Castle, which was the big castle in the woods, uh, which all of the, the the woods were kind of owned by whoever owned the castle it was sort of part of that um, so Henry Howard told this story um, it was on the 8th of September in 1803 um, a number of guests came to stay at Corby Castle one of whom was the Reverend Henry A, we don't know his full name of Redborough um, So Henry A stayed the night and then left unexpectedly the next morning, very agitated. And he was asked about it some months later. And he's he's a religious man and apparently he was was not one who was given to kind of flights of fancy or, you know, he was was quite a rational sort of, obviously he was religious, but, you know, at the time that was kind of the norm. He wasn't a guy who talked about ghosts and things. Um, So the Reverend told this story. Soon after we went to bed, we fell asleep. It might have been between one and two in the morning when I awoke. I observed that the fire was totally extinguished, but although that was the case and we had no light, I saw a glimmer in the centre of the room, which suddenly increased to a bright flame. I looked out, apprehending that something had caught fire, when, to my amazement, I beheld a beautiful boy 
clothed in white, with bright locks resembling gold, standing by my bedside, in which position he remained for some minutes, fixing his eyes upon me with a mild and benevolent expression. He then glided gently towards the edge of the chimney, where it was obvious there was no possible egress, and entirely disappeared. I found myself again in total darkness, and all remained quiet until the usual hour of rising. I declare this to be a true account of what I saw at Corby Castle, upon my word as a clergyman. So, that's the Radiant Boy. It wasn't the Aiden Boy. And, um, but I wondered, this, this is the sort of original version of the story, but I wondered where did the idea of becoming rich or turning into a witch and then dying come from? There's this thing, isn't it, that there's kind of like with the Bannister Doll thing and, and and a lot of these stories, the way that when, once they enter that sort of like almost slightly more pop culture sphere where um, you have the idea of, of that Faustian pact, you know, like that yeah, was the kind of bit it, that was missing from the Bannister Doll, but like, you know, you say you can grow rich, but you, you're going to die. I, I think that witch maybe just came from rich, but... It but definitely like, came <laughs> from witch, yeah. Well, yeah. I did some more research into it, so... It, it's, it appears that Radiant Boy stories are actually fairly common in Cumbria. Um, mm. So, and apparently they supposedly originate from German folklore. And the, there's the idea of um, the German word Kindermodering, uh, which is children murdered by their mothers. So, Cumbria was actually settled by German and Scandinavian people in the 9th and 10th centuries, apparently. So, that makes sense. I mean, I've always thought that some some of the place names in Cumbria are really interesting and not like you'd get anywhere else in the country. I mean, there's a place called Sizer Castle, yeah, which yeah. sounds exactly like a German word, doesn't it? Yeah, um, yeah. It was heavily settled by the uh, the Vikings as well, wasn't it? It was they yeah. came on the top because I mean, if you've been to like Reghead and all of that, it's all yeah. they're all they're all those sort of Scandinavian words. Yeah. So like the the this. This was from a book called um, The Encyclopedia of Ghosts and Spirits by Rosemary Ellen Guiley, but we can link to that in the show notes. Um, but yeah, it's interesting how like that's actually potentially a story that's come from, um, mm. from that folklore. Now, I found another version of the story, um, which is another sort of radiant boy story, which I'd like to tell as well, although this isn't, this isn't in Cumbria, this is actually an island, but it's actually only kind of across... <laughs> yeah. Really, isn't it? From it's not actually that far geographically. If you, as the crow flies, oh. um, so Captain, I don't have a date on this one, but I'm assuming it's a similar era because it talks about hunting. Um, so Captain Robert Stewart was posted in Ireland, and one day he went hunting and became lost. With darkness coming on, he sought lodging at the home of a gentleman. There were other guests in the house, and Stewart was invited to stay for a few days and join their hunt. He agreed. When it came time to retire, Stuart was taken to a room with little furniture and a blazing fire. He fell asleep and was awakened suddenly by a bright light in the room. At first, he thought it was the fire. The fire, however, had gone out, but the light seemed to emanate from the chimney. Gradually, Stuart became aware of the glowing form of a beautiful naked boy surrounded by a dazzling brilliance. The boy gave him an earnest look and then faded away. Stuart thought he had been played a joke and was mightily offended. And the following morning, he brusquely announced his departure. The host managed to pry the details out of him and gave the butler a tongue-lashing for putting Stuart in the boys' room. The butler protested that he had lit a fire to keep him from coming out. 
The host explained to Stuart that according to a tradition in his family, whoever saw the radiant boy would first rise to a great prosperity and power and then suddenly die a violent death. Stuart, the second heir in line in his family, was unconcerned. Within a few years, however, his older brother died in a boating accident. Stuart left the army and entered politics, rising quickly. He was influential in creating the Act of Union between England and Ireland in 1800. He served as a Secretary of War in 1805 and 1807, and as a Foreign Secretary from 1812 on. Despite his success, he was not well liked and was even hated for many by his cold demeanour. In 1821, his father died, making him Lord Castlereagh, second Marquess of Londonderry. So, in 1822, his fortunes abruptly began to dim. He suffered from gout, and the stresses of his career began to take a heavy personal toll. He became paranoid and suspicious and acted strangely, and was feared to be losing his mind. He was confined to his country house, North Quay Place, and forbidden to have razors, lest he do something foolish. On August 12, 1822, he took a penknife and slashed his throat, killing himself. It dawned on me as you were saying that, Stephen, that you were about to say this is Lord Castlereagh, isn't it? As you know, I'm a bit of a history, yeah. a history geek. So I yeah. know how, exactly how this ends. Yeah, because uh, was... you know I studied it in history. I was thinking you were talking about Castlereagh. Yeah. So that is my story. It's not a necessarily personal one, but it was. That's a great, though, because you know, having studied all of that, and I knew about Castlereagh, but being on Suicide Watch and all of this stuff, and how he met, I, 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 the, the bit that makes it make more sense is the Radiant Boy. That's the bit you yeah. don't get in any of the history books, of course. You, we, we, I, I seem to remember we got told he he was suffering with depression and mania, as they would have called it in in, in those days, and all and all these things. But it actually, yeah, sort I'm, of on a human level, makes a lot more sense when you get the bit yeah. that isn't in the history books, you know? I think it was particularly interested in light of what Hines said about his... Because his story was about a man who brutally murdered a woman, and whereas the one that I brought was about a woman who brutally murdered a child. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I don't know, it's a, it's a whole thing where we end, we always end up being like opposite sides mm. of the same coin, um, <laughs> which is without intending so. I have a thought. I wanted to kind of talk a little bit about like the difference between US ghost stories and UK ghost stories um, you know and, and like the way that we have like years and years and years of recorded history that goes back almost as far as you want to go you know like I've been to Stonehenge recently and they can trace back 3,000 years of history through that whereas like I think a lot of like US history by the way that the British settled it um, that with the, a lot of the history was destroyed are you happy to kind of talk about that a bit? Yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. But there's more of an element of high strangeness to Bob's story, I think, whereas our three stories were very much based in, like, historical accounts that that, that came, you know, Mark had the plague pit, um, I, my story had the 18th century murder of a young woman, um, Buckley's had a, a, a murder from a similar time uh, of, of a young child, whereas I, I always think of a classic, you know, US ghost story is like the cabin in the woods, you know. There's something in there. It's Evil Dead, you know. Like, there's something in there. No one really knows why, but there's something scary in there. And that's got far more, I think, in common with UFO uh, phenomena. And, you know, a, like the, the occurrence of something that you can't quite touch or put your finger on. You don't know what's happening or why it's there. Um, what do you think about that, Bob? 
Well, okay, so the interesting thing, and, and I, I used to think similarly, but what you what you run into, the land here is just as old as the land there. Yeah. And so, but what we run into here are more, uh, you know, kind of uh, odd, creepy, like Native American spirits. You know what I mean? Like yeah. uh, all those type of strange cryptid type creatures that are so tied into Native American mythology and so that we have that and then we have the traditional ghost story you know with the old houses which tend to be from 1700s 1800s that kind of stuff or you get a lot of stuff into like the gangster period of the 30s that you're interacting with those kind of spirits and that kind of stuff yeah but for me, where I live, this was the last Indian reservation in the state of Indiana where I live. So this was all, I mean, there are Indian graveyards, burial mounds everywhere. Um, there are sacred sites I visit frequently, and I, you know, there's lots of activity around those. So, yeah, so we're, we're dealing with those type of energies more so. Because you had so many people for so many hundreds of years that you're interacting with, um, that I think that's the difference. Yeah, that's it's interesting. A, yeah, yeah. There, there are fewer people here. Although I suppose we interact do, with. we get those in the British Isles as well, don't we? I mean, you know, the shuck and the black dog and the shug or whatever oh, yeah. you want to call it, they're, they're all over the place. I mean, again, you know, Warwickshire's got them, Lancashire's got them. You've got boggarts and stuff, haven't you? Mm. And you know, you've got all the, all these things too. You've got the wild hunt. Again, the wild yeah. hunt was a big one when I was a kid. The wild hunt absolutely runs through the forests of Warwickshire late at night, and in Lancashire as well, and in Suffolk, yeah. and every, anywhere you can think of. You know, yeah. I'm only surprised when I speak with uh, you know paranormal investigators from the British Isles how little they bring that stuff up. Right. right. It's that always right. It's they're they're so focused on, you know, the ghost in the castle, the ghost in the pub. Oh, you know, yeah. that kind of stuff. And yeah. I'm always like, you know, I I personally, because I live in such a rural area, mm-hmm. I'm more interested in those type of strange uh you know, strange creatures. Maybe it's because we can document it so well people are inclined to you know people always want to go you know i mentioned my, my, my sister's friend's house which was just across the road from you know where i went on my dog walk that night they they found out pro- who they think this ghost in their house was they right they traced her yeah. back it was you know whatever her name was who died in such a way in you know in 1746 or whatever they think th- that was the owner of the house and we seem to like but i think because we can do that often you know, this was the former landlord of the pub, like you say, Bob, or this is the former, you know, owner of, of the sort of the, the hotel. So we, we focus on that. But I, I'm with you. I really like all the, I like the black dogs and the creatures, you know, and the dog men and the wild hunt and strange birds. Because it's all the same stuff. It's all here as well. And I guess it's everywhere. I've never really looked into it in the rest of Europe, but it'll all, it'll all be there. it's it's totally universal isn't it It I think one of the issues with the UK is that like in comparison to the US is that in the US you've got like areas of forest that are like thousands and thousands of acres that you could 
just get lost and starving. Yeah. You know, whereas yeah. in the UK, <laughs> yeah. you're well, never you more than a couple of miles from no. from a road mm. or, a, yeah. or, a, you know, right. we, yeah. so it kind of, it, because we're so densely uh, yeah. populated, it takes yeah. away some of that mystery. I'm not saying these things don't exist here. I'm saying that perhaps that they're kind of easier to debunk. No, you're right, though, Stephen, because where, where they still tend to be reported are on our wilder areas, aren't you? So most of your mm. black dog things and stuff will be on Exmoor. They'll be on Dartmoor. Where there's a chance of you being a bit further away they'll be in the wilds of scotland weird stuff yeah you know but you're right in just terms of pure geography you've got right. to be really unlucky to not walk your way out of the moors or out of the forest because yeah. it, at most it can be a couple of days you know where bob's from you could walk for weeks and never get <laughs> yeah. out of somewhere yeah. you know because th- this place is vast yeah 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 well, you you can fit the whole of the uk yeah. in the in the midwest here right so yeah i mean yeah. i remember when i visited and i went to um yosemite oh yeah and it just freaked me out because it's like <laughs> this one national park's bigger than like the whole of my country pretty yeah. much you know it's just enormous you can't we can't get our heads around it really i don't think you know no we definitely can't and it's like that's um it, it, i think it's almost like there's a, there's a whole different kind of fear which, yeah. which you know, it, yeah. it's like yeah, it's a fear so. that we kind of almost don't understand because we're not yeah. we're not faced with it, and it's like a that fear of the, the vastness. The woods are a different thing, aren't they? In in, in America, you know, like, like the yeah. woods that behind my house where I where I had the pan experience <laughs> are the size of uh, some gardens. You know, like when we were talking to Nathan Paul Isaac, his. The, the, the farm he'd moved into was bigger than the woods behind my house you know, like, it's just like the scales are just it's just on completely different scales but I'd never thought about that connection although it's quite obvious now I do think about it between the Native American legends and the cryptids you know it's very obvious you know, it's just I, it's, it's just probably that I'd ne- I've never had to think about it before but one thing that always strikes me about ghost stories and me and Buckley have talked about this a bit but I don't think on the podcast is how usually I find people's experiences more believable when they don't make sense as a coherent story. You know what I mean? Yeah. Okay, that's Be- because because it's yeah. usually more of a visceral type feeling, mm-hmm. you know, and that th- those are the, ex- the types of experience that I've had, you know, they don't fit into a neat box of a story, mm-hmm. middle, you know, beginning, middle, end, uh, and, and whatnot. What's weird about ghost stories, particularly the ones that we from the UK have told, is that they're all wrapped up in a nice little bow, aren't they? You know, yeah. you, you know, we 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 have this thing yeah. that's happened in the past. We well, have been, yeah, encounter. they've been told and told and retold yeah. for so yeah. long. They, they they build a narrative, yeah. And especially yeah, I, if, if they're being told to children, then yes. the, the sadistic dinner ladies will kind of change it to fit their <laughs> ends or whatever. And, and like, you lose that through thread, I think, of the um, of the truth a, a little bit. You know, because um, because w- which which part of any Mark's story is different because that was a very personal story about something that happened to you. Mm. But like for the ones that me and Buckley were telling, you know, where is the truth in the Bannister doll? Where is the truth in the Radiant Boy? You know, um, w- what is our actual proximity to the spooky goings on in those mm. stories? And, and that that I, I find interesting, you know, because the whole thing of you know, people having missing time and weird beings coming from outer space and like giving people you know, the classic giving them your little pancakes or whatever mm. it doesn't make a lick of sense in a narrative way right. but no it makes you think well there must be something going on there because why would anyone make that up 
Well, yeah. and you also have the situations, you know, like uh, like take Slender Man, right? So, like, you know, something that's totally crafted and it spreads. People believe it, and suddenly there are sightings and, and things happen. You know, right? And it, there, there's something about belief that feeds into all of that. You know, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, they, you know, the whole egregore, you know, situation. So, yeah, I mean, we're back. it's funny, isn't it? We've gone sort of full circle. I think we were starting at the very start. We talked talked about Candyman, as I remembered. That yeah. was the essence of that, isn't it? That the whole thing for Candyman is it's without the belief. He, you know, he is an egregore. Without the belief, without the whispers in the dark, the folk tales, he's nothing. He right. he has to have that to exist. You know. Um, and I think that's at the heart of that's at the heart of a lot of folk. Or, well, pr- pretty much all folklore, really. It's you've got to believe the tales for, and then they become alive. Then they continue generation after generation. Um, right. And so we always have that tension, don't you? There's always the tension between sort of modernity and folklore because modernity is constantly trying to push all this stuff away to the sides, and you know. Um, but it's, it can never get rid of it. The folklore always just pops its head up in some sort of changed, mutated way, but it's still right. that same tale, fundamentally. It's still it's still there, and there's something about it that won't go away. And whether that's because it's something innate in itself or it's because it's innate in our, our need to believe it and keep promoting it, because it's... I don't know. I've never known what the answer to that is, if you know what I mean, in a chicken and egg sort of way. Or, uh, mm. Is it something fundamentally that's coming through us and that's why we're all describing it generation after generation in broadly similar ways? Or is it, is it that we're making it? Is it sort of retro-causal from, from humans? And in a way, I don't think it really matters because it's definitely a thing, isn't it? Well, that, you know, yeah, it was it the Alistair Crowley thing, yes. Yeah. He said it doesn't matter if it exists or not, it yeah. works. Yeah, right? yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. and I think it works both ways, doesn't it? I mean, I think it's it's like the whole idea of um, how sort of science fiction feeds into science because that science fiction inspires young yeah. kids who who then will go on to want to invent things. Yes, that they do invent and that happen, and, and you know it's sort of. Um, but then you think like science fiction is inspired by possibly actual things that have happened to people and sort yeah. of folklore or, mm-hmm. or you know tales tall tales that people have told or whatever so it's like but then science fiction also feeds back into what people believe and what people see I mean you've got the whole idea of like you know uh, the classic thing is the the UFO thing and how it moves along with our technology and you Mm -hmm. know sort of uh, it's sort of we we, we don't tend to see the the classic UFO with the portholes anymore we tend to see the smooth ones you know triangles that look suspiciously like stealth aircraft yeah yeah, yeah. almost exactly yeah (laughs) well if you think about it when when this when this the saucer shaped ufos started cropping up that all came from a a newspaper article that was you know from that that first sighting at uh yeah out in washington state where the guy saw these kind of boomerang shaped yeah And they said, well, how did they move? And he said, well, sort of like saucers skipping across yes, right. the water. Mm, yeah, and then yeah. all of a sudden people are seeing saucers yeah. in the sky. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's right. 
prior to that it'd been like it'd been the airships hadn't it it'd been the airship phenomena of the 1900s where they described them very much as looking like airships well yeah. that's because that's what they knew that floated floated in the sky at that point like i do love the idea that what is there is just something that is so impossible to explain that our brain is just like turning yes. it into the closest thing that we can possibly comprehend and that is informed by both technology and science and science fiction and somehow that kind of and you just wonder yeah does, does that does that happen the same way with things like you know like ghosts and spirits and, and cryptids and things like that is a cryptid a creature or is, is it a flesh and blood creature or is it just that it's something that's so that we've just got no context for whatsoever our our brain just cannot possibly have the words for it. We it's very rare if you think about it in in the 21st century like sort of western world it's very rare that we see something that we've got no context for it's very rare that we see something that we haven't been able to look up on the internet or we haven't read about or seen we 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 kind of we don't understand everything but we we sort of have words and have explanations for almost everything we don't have many things that we're just that just completely fucking confuse us in yeah, that way. Yeah. You know, it's like uh angel visitations are very much like alien visitations, right? Yeah. yeah People yeah, yeah. relate to it the only way they can. Yeah, so, absolutely. What? It's the lens that you choose to see it through, but cuz I think you're right Stephen, fundamentally people are trying to describe something that they literally have no mechanism to describe with I mean, any I think of the it's... stuff that we've normally got. This might be a bold statement, but I think it's the only thing left that we don't un- that we don't like in terms of that we can see that we don't understand. I mean, there's plenty of stuff like physics, like you know, sort of um, quantum physics that we don't properly understand. But in terms of an actual thing that we can see that we have no context for, what else is there? Well, I mean, there's the all of reality and consciousness. You know, like, like I well, mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> we need to get Mark, Mark Vincent in on this chat. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll, give, him, I'll yeah. give him a call. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean, though, don't you? Like, it's yeah. like we, we, we're almost whereas, say, even a hundred years I, I ago. I wasn't just being facetious, though. I mean, I mean, because because we can't explain the nature of reality and consciousness, you know, these things are probably aberrations or blips within the things that we have a standard base level of. Like our construct that we've yes. made. They're all yeah. models, and, aren't they? I mean, yeah. you're actually right, Hein. In, actually, when you dig into this stuff, they've, nobody's got a fucking idea what any of this no. stuff is in actual fact. These are just models to, that's their best guess at describing it. And every yeah. now and again, every 50 years or so, or whatever it is, this model gets thrown away and they realise that there's a better one that they're going <laughs> to use now. The point mm. is, is they haven't got a clue, I don't think, really. No. Maybe they never will. Maybe what we're fundamentally getting down to is, is you're trying to describe things that we have no language or even the faculties, maybe, yeah. to understand. And maybe we're not going to. I don't know. It comes from another dimension, you know, that yeah. works under different properties in us. Yeah. So when we try yeah. to put it into a three dimensional context, yeah. you know, in this, you've got this, you know, yeah. ultra terrestrial entity that you know just blows the mind yeah that, I, I think I think that's pretty much it that's very much how I've been thinking about it for a long time now really it's you might as well be trying to describe the workings of a you know an internal combustion engine to a gnat or something we, it's just 
it's so far away from that we just can't get our heads around it we can't we can produce models and try and explain all this stuff but fundamentally we don't know just, everyone accepts it you know like matter dark matter yeah but what actually is it nobody can nobody can tell you nobody can tell you what it actually is we have no idea um, well, the machine elves could tell us, but <laughs> <laughs> they don't want to. Do we have anything we can recommend for a spooky season for, for facelessness to, to have a little look at? So, a book I would recommend is an old favourite of mine, and it's, uh, it's a pretty old book, actually. It's called Something Wicked This Way Comes by Ray Bradbury. And um, it's... I've forgotten when it was written, but we'll, we'll link to it in the show notes. It's a really great, sort of creepy um, book told from the point of view of uh, a couple of young boys who... This, basically this like creepy guy who runs a circus comes to town and all sorts of weird shit starts to happen um, and I, I love that book and I love I think Ray Bradbury's really good at like uh, sort of um, describing the world through the eyes of young kids young boys in particular I guess and it's just like even though I didn't grow up in the 1930s obviously um, it's still sort of it, almost like Stephen King does in, with the 50s you know it's like you, you can really get into that sort of 30s childhood kind of thing and it's um, yeah it's a really good kind of creepy book with a lot of classic Halloween um, imagery in it uh, a film I'd recommend that perhaps our listeners might not have seen is called The Borderlands I know Mark has seen it um, right. it's a sort of found footage horror from about I think 10-15 years ago British yeah. quite low budget really cool not what you're expecting not your standard ghost stuff um pretty terrifying really good so i'd recommend that the borderlands um and music so i thought rather than do my classic you know recommend some like spooky albums i don't really listen to a lot of spooky music now my goth days are long behind me i tend to be a creature of love and light these days uh but i thought a song that you might not have heard is um Lana Del Rey's cover of Season of the Witch by Donovan which is actually a really cool cover it's really like drowsy and like like all Lana Del Rey yeah. songs but it's yeah. Season of the Witch it's a great song so that's what I would recommend that's what I'm bringing to the table to the campfire <laughs> I just want to say there's also an incredible cover of Season of the Witch by Richard Thompson Oh yeah, uh, absolutely, absolutely amazing. Um, right. like, if you can find it, I don't think it's on Spotify still. Uh, it was from a TV show soundtrack, but you can definitely get it on YouTube, and we'll link to it in the show notes because I think that that song bears listening to at this time of year. Yeah, I mean the the, the whole version of it as well is great. I think it's just a yeah. great song, isn't it? Yeah. So yeah, you can't go wrong. So, so who's I'll next? Go next? Yeah, because I've got a a book, a film series, and an album as well. Um, so I was going to say October Country by Ray oh. Bradbury. Yeah. Wow, we didn't plan this, by the way. No, yeah. <laughs> when, um, when did you when did you think of this, by the way? I, I thought of it about ten minutes ago and wrote it down, and then I was writing down uh, something uh, wicked this way comes underneath it when you said wow. that. Wow. Okay. <laughs> because I mean, 
but but Bradbury's potent with this time of year, end of summer, beginning of winter. You know, like that autumn, yeah. autumnal. You know, he all the way it. through that season, Bradbury was all about that, and he captures the magic, and he captures the mystery, and he, he captures yeah. that longing as well that comes at that time of year, uh, that longing for something to happen and something spooky to happen. October Country is short stories that are full of that. And um, every year I try and, um, I like, God knows, I mean, have I ever got to the end of that book? I don't know, because every year in October I start reading it from the beginning again. And then, like, as soon as October finishes, put it down again. Uh, but it's a fantastic <laughs> you book. You put it down and, again and, and listen to November Rain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so film, I'm going to go predictable and say uh, uh, the Evil Dead trilogy. You're even wearing an Evil Dead t-shirt. I know, because they, they are... Um, <laughs> Fun, funny, scary, brutal, uh, just beautifully made, beautifully shot, beautifully written films. All three of the original trilogy, mm-hmm. um, and I just like—I you can't beat them really. Just for that sort of, you know, the sort of fun that comes with Halloween. You know, the, the less yeah. serious side—that's yeah. where Evil yeah. Dead lives. And music, I would just want to go with probably my favourite album, which is Spiderland by Slint. And that is very much for this time of year as well. Um, all the way through, there's weird stuff happening, you know, from Breadcrumb Trail, which is the first track about seeing a fortune teller and having a strange experience. Um, there's Nosferatu Man. There's um, Good Morning Captain, which is a ghost story at the end. Short album, it's maybe six tracks, but I just, you just can't beat it for me. And it's just so full of atmosphere and it's full of darkness. And it's, it's very, very beautiful. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Excellent. Mark, do you want to go next? Yeah, um, so, I mean, for book, I am going to go for an absolute classic. It's a classic to me, but I think a lot of, not as many people when I talk to them about it, have read it as you would imagine. And in a lot of ways, I prefer it to the, the first book. And the book that, the single book, apart from The House of Leaves, which runs it a close second, the single book that has freaked me the most out and genuinely scared me is William Peter Blatty's Legion. Uh, the sequel obviously to The Exorcist which everybody has read The Exorcist or at least they've seen the film Legion is the film version It's it has its moments, it's okay uh, it, weirdly it deviates from the book quite a lot which is a particularly odd thing as Blatty himself actually direct, took over directing for what was Exorcist 3 Legion because they did that terrible second film that was just awful but if you've never read any Vase listeners have never read William Peter Blatty's Legion, the actual sequel to The Exorcist, read it. It's terrifying. It's absolutely. It's got loads of stuff about EVP in it, which really freaked me out that much. I couldn't put a blank. I couldn't listen to the end of blank tapes for a while. You know, when you've just got the hiss, because I was so freaked out by reading this. Genuinely terrifying. Um, and then for film well I'm going to do this in two parts for a film I'm going to go for another classic if you ask me a single Halloween film that I want to sit on on Halloween night to get put it on to get really sort of just in the mood for that the film that always does it for me is uh, John Carpenter's The Fog because oh, yeah. classic even starts with kids having a ghost story around a campfire on the beach the story of the drowned sailors being brought onto the rocks you know by the wreckers all of that it's just classic carpenter and it's just full of all that atmosphere literally seeping like the fog out of the screen brilliant i i must have seen it 30 40 times i don't know or something if it's on i'll just watch it again 
there's, there's, you know. And then I'm going to also add a little film and music onto it, and this is horribly self-promotional, but I'm going to do it anyway because I might as well. I'm... (laughs) There's a really genuinely weird film which I had seen before, but I'm actually put the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, the classic Weimar Republic <laughs> era film. It's weird. I'd forgotten quite how weird it is. And the reason I've got, I'm actually pre- performing a live improvised soundtrack for that at, uh, at, at the uh, Lee Cinema near Wigan oh, wow. in a couple of weeks. Uh, a week on no, a week on Sunday. In fact, actually, are tickets still available? They are tickets. Are I think still available? Yeah. Although this episode might run after. What's yeah, the date? yeah, it's probably been and gone. It's through the Yorkshire it, Silent Film Festival. Um, it was originally going to be Nosferatu, then they realised that they missed the anniversary of Nosferatu. I think that was last year or something. So we've gone for Caligari instead. It's weird though, and genuinely, still there are a couple of sequences in it that are actually very frightening. Actually. And I'm going to try and make them even more frightening if I can by making some strange noises. But so yeah, I may even record it. I may record my live set if it's any oh, good. You'd yeah. be able to put the silent film on and and see what I've tried to do to it. But yeah, um, there you go. Film and music Wonderful. together. That'd be great. Yeah, Bob. Uh, recommendations. All right, so- I was going to say the October Country. Oh, oh so, yes. uh, we were all on the same wavelength here. Right. Uh, so instead, I'm going to say uh, Abraham Blackwood's The Willows. Or any oh, of his yeah. short stories this time of year. Yes. I, I just love Blackwood's prose. That is a poetic. really creepy story. Yeah, really so. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, that would be fun for this season. And uh, for a movie, um, uh, I'm going to go with The Devil Rides Out, which oh, yeah. uh, Dennis Wheatley, right? So it's, I, I loved that book as a kid. And then Christopher Lee's just so brilliant in it, in the movie. So, uh, yeah, and for music, I'm going to recommend Charming Disaster, who are kind of a um, horror-themed folk duo out of New York, and uh, they are just delightful. They're very, very Halloween-themed music uh, that I think, uh, yeah, your uh, listeners would get a real kick out of Excellent. Well, well, we'll make sure we get all these, get all these in the show notes. And uh, I mean, you never know. By the time this goes out, Mark's recording might even be online. You never know. Mm-hmm. If he puts it know. online, I don't know. Yeah, we'll I've... see. You just can't so, tell with these things. Talking Mark's music, Mark. Where can our listeners find you? Uh, you can find me on Bandcamp fairly easily. You've only just got to put. Uh, that three combination of words in doesn't come up that often. In fact, you, if, you, if you just put it into any popular search engine of your choice, you, you, I mean, you're likely to find my, my music fairly easily. What are those three words, Mark? <laughs> they are field, lines, and cartographer. <laughs> Candyman, Candyman, Candyman. <laughs> yeah, <that's right>. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, hijacking your. <laughs> What's your most recent album? Uh, my most recent album is called Phases of This and Other Moons. Available on the wonderful Castles in Space good. album. Uh, label, yeah. I should say. Big up big up to Colin from Castles in Space. Yeah, absolutely. Big up Colin. Lovely man. Mr. Bob Freeman, you've been a busy man since we last saw you. Where can people find your work? Um, occultdetective.com is. Uh, and if you look up Occult Detective on any social media site, I'm there. That's how I'm known. And, uh, 
and your yeah, current so projects. You've got Vampirella on, haven't you, at the moment? Uh, yeah, right, yeah. So the first issue came out last week. Uh, issue 2 drops November 1st, the day after Halloween. So what better way to uh, deal with your Halloween hangover than with a, <laughs> a nice little uh, werewolf, vampire, witch, ghost story? <laughs> And we mentioned it at the beginning. You've you've also uh, been working on a tabletop game based on the Frank Frazetta stuff. Yeah, my son and I wrote uh, a uh, kind of a board game uh, RPG hybrid uh, for the Fire and Ice franchise. You know, so we've worked closely with the Frazetta estate. Uh, that's how the Vampirella gig came about. I co-wrote that with Sarah Frazetta, so. Um, yeah, it's a great partnership with them, and uh, I mean, I was just a huge fan of Frank Rosetta's art as a kid, and so getting to play in those worlds has been, you know, a dream come true. Fantastic. And if you want more Vase, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram. That's at Vase, then Vase spelled backwards. So that's at V A Y S E E S Y A V. Our website is www.vase.co.uk. We have all our episodes there, and that is the place where you can find the complete show notes. You can get us on all podcasting platforms, or most of them anyway, um, but it's only really on our website that you can get the full show notes. Um, you can email us with your own experiences and your own stories on vaseinfo at gmail.com. You can get the soundtrack to the podcast at uh, Bandcamp, um, and that's you can search base, you can get to that through our website. Um, and it's a wonderful soundtrack made by Mr. Stephen James Buckley himself here under the name Polypores. And we also have a Ko fi, so you can find a link to that on our website as well. Um, if you enjoy the podcast and you have any money um, that you'd like to swing our way, you can do that. Um, and if you make a monthly subscription, you can join our Discord, which is a fun place to be. And there's many a ghost story told on the Discord. And Excellent. please subscribe, um, share, tell your friends about this podcast because that is the way that these things work now. Most social media is broken, fragmented, and a bit weird at the moment. Uh, so actually just find a friend or someone who you don't think will hurt you and just put headphones <laughs> on them and play them a little bit of bass. And, um, and if they still don't hurt you, then uh, you've I think done... I do it if you you've think done... they are going to hurt you. Come on. Yes. <laughs> I think everyone's going to hurt me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so before you all go um, I do have one final question for you which is is aimed at all of you um, what do you think about oh my god Jesus Christ is everyone seeing this oh, quick somebody call it. Oh,